Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 299th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Tim Reagan. Tim is the founder of Prairie View Wealth Partners, a hybrid advisory firm based in Orland Park, Illinois, that oversees $100 million in assets under management for 190 client households. What's unique about Tim, though, is how he leverages the independence he gained by transitioning from an insurance agency model to become a hybrid with Thrive and Advisor Network to focus his firm on faith-based planning, and then restructure his own back office by shifting it into a separate company that also partners with other advisory firms to offer them middle and back office support as well. In this episode, we talk in depth about how, after realizing his firm was too big to be a solo and too small to be big, Tim decided to split into two advisory businesses where Prairie View Wealth Partners remains the advisory firm focusing on the front office aspects, and Focus Forward focuses on middle and back office support so that Tim could create capacity for his advisory firm to really focus on the client experience. Why Tim was inspired to offer this middle and back office support structure through Focus Forward to other firms, separated by what Tim refers to as an iron curtain between them, that are typically 75 to $250 million in AUM that are also struggling with having the support and capacity they need to grow and scale past their founder. And why, since Focus Forward was already knowledgeable in the day-to-day operations of the firms they support, Tim decided to incorporate continuity agreements with his advisory firm so that the advisors could have peace of mind that if something happens to them, Prairie View could ensure their practices would continue their legacies. We also talk about why, after two decades as a captive agent for Thrive and Financial, Tim decided instead to join their RIA platform, the Thrive and Advisor Network, so that he could have more independence to offer his clients a wider range of solutions than just what was available through the company. How Tim got comfortable concentrating on faith-based planning in today's environment, because as Tim puts it, his faith is simply an authentic part of him, and he wants to work with clients who similarly believe in the importance of aligning their faith and values with their money to live up to their God-given potential. And why even though Tim outsources middle and back office services, he keeps his marketing support in a full-time in-house role with a strong focus on not just external marketing so that their story can be told the way they see fit, but also internal marketing to work on enhancing their existing client experience and hopefully get more clients talking about them to potential referrals. And be certain to listen to the end where Tim shares how, despite being a goal-setting type of person, he ironically struggled with actually achieving the significant growth goals he set for himself early on as once they were achieved, the motivation to grow was gone, and instead ultimately decided to focus his energy on what he calls goals that have significance rather than goals that are only significant at a point in time. Why Tim believes that hiring the right people early is always a good idea, even if there's a fear of spending the money, is when the time comes for needed support, it's usually too late to take the time it takes to find those right people. And why Tim believes in the importance of daily affirmations as a way to set mini goals that help him to focus on what's important to him, being a better husband and father, to pray, and to make time to take care of himself too. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Tim Reagan. Welcome, Tim Reagan, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. I'm really excited to be here. 
I really appreciate you joining us today and and looking forward to a conversation around what to me is just this sort of ongoing evolution for us as advisors of, as for lack of a better term, just being more authentic and getting more comfortable in our own skin. I was sort of fascinated and really appreciative in in you know just looking at, at like at your advisory firm website and you have this wonderful mission statement that's just kind of posted right out there on the website. We partner with Christian families to provide trusted and faith-based advice delivered through personal conversations. And and I feel like we're you know, in an environment these days where, you know, it's particularly challenging to talk a lot of, about a lot of issues about a lot of both political issues and and as well as religious issues. And so I was really struck that just in a world where a lot of advisors have this focus of like, whatever you do, don't bring up religion and politics, don't bring up religion and politics, don't bring up religion and politics, <laughs> seems to be a mantra for a, a lot of advisors in a lot of parts of the world. Uh, and then like, here's this mission statement that you put out to the clients that you serve of, we partner with Christian families to provide trusted and faith-based financial advice. And so I I guess to start, I just really wanted to to hear more from you uh, of just how you think about or or get comfortable in in putting out a mission statement like that in an environment where a lot of advisors are very uncomfortable to talk about things like religion and politics these days. Yeah, for sure. So it probably uh, goes to just being who we are. Um, it's how we live our life. It's our point of view on the world. And I think from my way of thinking about it is it's really hard for me uh, to connect with my clients in a way if they don't know what that point of view is. And um, and like I said, it's just, it's just kind of who we are. And so if that's how we're going to live and that's how we're going to come to the come to the conversation, then I think our clients should know that. Um, and I think that especially from our perspective, faith tends to be a bigger who am I type of thing than political affiliation or mm-hmm. some of those things. I mean, those things can change over time. And I, your faith can as well, obviously. But uh, but to, to us, it's just a way for us to be authentic in how are we approaching the conversation and uh, where do we come from as we have that conversation. And so just do you worry about clients who will say like, well, I'm I'm not a Christian, so I'm not a good fit or, you know, I just I don't think my advisor should be talking about faith. I'm I'm out of here. I mean, do you do you worry about that kind of flack or negative feedback or or, you know, prospects who are going to march out the door from uh, the fact that that's how you're approaching planning and relationships with clients? Yeah, it's it's funny that you say that because first, it's never really crossed my mind. Um I think that it's it's meant to be more of an inclusive rather than an exclusive kind of point of view. Uh, we have, ironically, we have had one client that I uh, was almost offended uh, when she came in, and uh, one prospective client, I should say, uh, was was offended when she came in, and that was our point of view, even though uh, we're that overt and saying, you know, kind of this is where we come come to the conversation at. And so, I think from my perspective, there is enough business out here. Uh, if if as of a, a uh, industry, we were serving everybody the way that we could be and should be. Uh, we'd be in a much better place as a country financially. And so I think there's plenty of opportunity out there. If if somebody can look and say, yeah, I absolutely subscribe to that and I want to uh, to go there, uh, then that's all the better. And it's, it's better if they realize where we're coming from, if they would choose to opt out of that, that's even better for both of us as well, because I'm sure there's another advisor that, that can give them just as good as advice. And so how does this show up in in practice in in conversations for you? I mean obviously like I can I can see it on the website. You you mentioned a a prospect who who uh 
who was offended when she came in and found that was your your point of view. So it, like, is that literally part of the the prospecting process or kind of like the prospective client approach talk that this is part of what you talk about when you explain your your services? Yeah, really good question. No, it it really isn't. You know, there are firms out there that do a really good job of uh, Bible based financial planning and and that kind of stuff, and that's not us. Uh, and so in our conversations, it's not something where we even really purposefully question into or dig into what their faith life is like. Um, it really is something though that is just who we are. And so uh, the way I like to think about it is that you know you can't separate me from being half German and half Irish. It's just who I am. And, and because I am, that gives me certain physical characteristics. It gives me certain uh, probably ways that I think and emotional characteristics. There's just that genetic code in me. Uh, and, it, and I carry that with me everywhere I go. And, and I kind of view my faith the same way. Uh, it's just a part of who I am and it's a part of who our company is. And so many times as we sit down and talk with somebody, it's not that we're being very deliberate or overt in having the faith conversation. But if we talk for long enough, at some, it, we, I, my faith will come up and I will talk about my, my point of view uh, around my faith, just sharing with who I am. And, uh, and so that's, I think that sometimes then in this particular case, uh, that's what kind of uh, caught her off guard uh, and she was a little bit offended at. But uh, so that's how we approach it. So you you made a distinction that you you is is you like you try to deliver faith based advice, but you're not necessarily doing. I think you said it Bible based planning, right? For the segment advisors that build you know portfolios following biblically responsible investing principles, right? There's a there's a segment of the advisor community that's very focused there. I guess I'm wondering like how how do you dis- distinguish sort of what you do and how you approach faith based financial planning advice and advice advisors that are are implementing that sort of bible-based planning. Sure. So I and I don't I don't profess to be the expert on uh, biblically based financial advice. I know that there are people that do a really good job with that. Um, and and so I don't know necessarily for you know 100% what their approach is, but I can tell you from our approach uh, our point of view is that everything we have is a gift from God. Uh, it's something that he has given to us, and it is our job to be as good of a steward with that as possible. Uh, and so that even goes to how we approach our clients. Um, there's a lot of firms that, you know, a lot of conversation around, uh, do you charge fee for advice and, and that kind of stuff. And, and our approach uh, has mostly been if somebody comes to us and can't afford to pay for our services, they will still be a client of ours. Uh, because I believe that God has given me the gifts to be in this business. I think that this business blesses me far more than uh, than I deserve. And so if I have those gifts, then it is just my obligation and my duty to share those uh, the best way that I can. And that's the same thing we help with our clients. Uh, you know, the, the money that you have in our viewpoint isn't money that is, yes, it's yours while it's here, but it's ultimately money that, uh, that God has allowed you to earn. He's given you the gifts to go earn it. You've been a good steward with those things. You've saved them. You've been diligent. You've been wise yeah. with it. Um, but we don't approach it from a, hey, this is my type of, of a uh, perspective. We approach it from a, how should I be using this and uh, what should I be doing with it so that I can be as good of a steward as possible. So now help us understand the advisory firm overall, like the business just as it exists today. What What is your firm and what do you do and who do you do it for? Sure. Uh, the way I like to think about it, so our firm is a small firm. Uh, we have $100 million in assets that we're actively managing and approximately $80 million in assets that we're uh, advising on. 
uh, those would be primarily, you know, things that are inside of maybe an annuity contract or uh, some retail mutual funds, something like that. Uh, who we do business with, I like to describe as mom and pop America. Uh, most the the place that we sing the most are people that have made and saved their money themselves. A lot of times, it they are people that are pretty I don't know diligent, fairly conservative, uh, have just done a good job of stashing some money away. And and so I it's funny we make a joke in the office uh, if you're if anybody's name is Bob, uh, we would do really good with them because about half our clients I think are named Bob. So I don't think we can market that way necessarily. But uh, but what we find beyond the name Bob, uh, we find that a lot of times it's people that are pretty detail oriented too. Uh, we do really well with engineers middle managers, um, pharmacists, those types of people. Um, but we also do well with uh, the, the local person that, that's been a, a plumber or an electrician his entire life too. So we're, we're really kind of, like I said, mom and pop America. And how many clients does the firm serve overall? 190 houses, about. And what is the what does the staff structure look like for you? I mean, how, what team is there for serving them? So uh, we've we've got internal to Prairie View. Uh, we have five team members. Uh, but what I what happened is about a year ago, uh, we split Prairie View in half, if you will, uh, roughly. And we said we're going to have Prairie View that is going to be the financial advising firm. Uh, and so inside of Prairie View is where we house all of our advisors, uh, which is me and, and uh, another twenty year veteran in the industry. Um, we also have. Uh, a a head of marketing, somebody that is a contract person that does marketing work. We have an apprentice uh, who's going to learn to become an advisor here in the next couple of years, we hope, uh, and then a front office person. And all Prairie View does is focuses on what we call the front office. Uh, Front office is anything that is client-facing, client advising, helping clients make decisions, those types of things. Uh, we took the other part of our team and and created a different company that does all of the middle and back office work for financial advisory firms. And so that company's Focus Forward. And so through Focus Forward, what we do is they handle uh, all of our new business support, all of our investment management operations, our service work, uh, and all of our financial planning operations. And so if you look at the two, uh, Preview is much larger than than our assets under management would would make it seem, uh, because we have we have six employees inside of that focus forward model, uh, but we only have them because of because of the ability for them to serve other financial advisory firms. Um, so if you look at our total team, it looks much bigger than than maybe a hundred million dollar AUM firm would look like, uh, but that's but that's why Michael. So so. I just help me understand this split. Like why why are we why are we splitting the firm into two two sub firms, one for the you know, prairie view for the front portion of marketing and serving clients and, and focus forward for the, the back end of the firm? Like why the split? Why this structure? So the the biggest reason was uh, if I if I can tell the story, uh, be honest with it. I was sitting. My wife and I will go to Mexico a couple of times a year just for a few days to get away and kind of clear our heads. Uh, she usually sleeps in, and I like to get up early and sit on the beach and write. And it was during one of those trips that I was thinking around. You know, all of our financial advisory firms basically once you get past the front office really do the same things. And uh, 
in that capacity, we're not really offering any, I don't know, my secret sauce isn't how we place trades. Uh, my secret right. sauce isn't even in how I put together a financial planning folder. Uh, my secret sauce is how I sit down and, and talk to my clients. And so as we were sitting there, we, we just thought if for us, we were in a position where we were we were too small or too big really to be a solo, uh, but too too small to be big. And so I'm I'm faced with I have one full time employee that I have to hire. I don't have enough work for that person to do only new business work or only investment management work. And so instead, I hire this person and I ask them to do all of these things and to really not be a specialist in anything. And so then the thought the thought was, if we started to separate the, the middle and back office out, the part of the business that really is not my core competency and it's not my secret sauce, then potentially we could have other firms that would, would have the same need that we did. They could subscribe to that service or hire hire those people to help them as well. And now come to us and say, hey, I need a full-time employee, but I need them to do these different functions. Well, you'll get, you know, 25% of our new business support person and 25% in the investment management or you know, whatever that percentage needs to be. Uh, and there's no way, as, and so then as I thought about that, we could have done that inside of Prairie View. However, it would be really hard for me to go to, uh, I don't know, Awaken uh financial advisors and say, hey, Awaken, why don't you give me all of your client lists? We'll service all of your clients. And by the way, we're in a competing business. You know, that's that's really right. hard to do. And so so that's why we decided it really makes sense to kind of separate this off, create a separate company that Prairie View, yes, participates in. It's a company that we have some ownership in and, and all that kind of stuff, but it's not a company that we are actively managing, running. We've got iron curtains, if you will, between the Prairie View side and the focus forward side. So we can't see anybody else's clients. And uh, and it's a way then for advisors to come together really in a, I don't know, lack of a better term, kind of a co-op type of a concept um, and, and, and hopefully raise the service level to all of our clients and hopefully raise the client experience across the board for everybody. So the idea here is Focus Forward ultimately is meant to be a firm that provides that back office support, right? You know, new business, client onboarding, investments, planning, the, those operational components for both Prairie View, the firm you happen to jointly own, and other independent advisors that want that back office support as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the whole concept. The whole idea is that if, you know, and I like to think about it even from a, uh, if I, so we use uh, a couple of CRMs within the, that focus forward realm, but uh, we use both Salesforce as well as Redtail, depending on what firms use in their practice. But if we use Salesforce as an example, uh, inside of a financial advisor's firm, they may use Salesforce to do some task management, some mon- manage phone calls, uh, some of the client experience stuff, but to get into and to program workflows to make sure that everything from A to Z in a new business application uh, gets done, that assets are transferred, that clients get a phone call when they're supposed to, to let them know where things are at in the process, uh, to make sure that all of the assets actually come in and, you know, just go down this litany of things that it takes when you set up that new account. Most advisory firms, even if they're using a tool like Salesforce, don't have the resources or the people that they can make that a process and a system that is automated and not automated like a computer's doing it or a a machine's doing it, but automated so that none of the steps are missed. Um, And so instead, it becomes something that they want to have happen and it's intuitive and they, they, you know, go through this whole 
rigmarole of trying to find really good people and they get somebody and then that person leaves and they have to go through, you know, four others before they get the next right person in the seat right. uh, because they don't have the resources in order to focus on that. And so by multiple firms coming together, all of a sudden now it looks like a firm that is a, I don't know, a billion dollar firm, uh, even though we're a bunch of hundred million dollar people walking around. Uh, but we have the, we have, we can provide the professional services of a billion dollar firm or 10 billion or, you know, whatever the number is, but right, um, right. because, because we're able to, to pool those resources, if you will, or pool the need for those people. And so does, like, does Prairie View literally pay focus forward? Like, does you know company A pay company B for its current services? Yeah. So uh, the uh, any planning firm that that uh, signs a scope of work and uh, uh, kind of a, a letter of authorization that kind of stuff with Focus Forward, uh, there is a scope of work that goes with it that says here's what we're going to provide for that company, uh, whether it's us or you know some other financial planning firm. Uh, here's the services that we'll provide. Here's what our estimated, um, what we think that we're going to have to do for a firm your size. And here's what the cost is going to be. Uh, if a firm has something major happen during the course of a year, they, you know, we have the agreement, we'll, uh, we'll ratchet up or down if, you know, if those, uh, capacities are, are much different. You know, if a firm goes out and doubles in size because they acquired another firm, uh, that looks different than the the size firm that, that originally signed on. And so it's a fixed flat monthly fee that says, here's what you'll get and here's what it costs you monthly uh, moving forward. And so can you give us an understanding, like what are typical fees? I mean, just like what what does it come out to be in practice for, for firms you often work with? Yeah. So uh, under that model, the commitment is that it will cost you what it would cost you to hire a person or less in order to do it with Focus Forward. So for example, if if we're working with a firm, say Prairie View size, uh, Prairie View probably based on the size that we are needs, I'm guessing somewhere between two and a half and maybe three full-time support people to do the stuff that Focus Forward does for us. Well, if I look at what it would take for me to hire those let's call it three full-time people. If I'm hiring licensed staff, if I make sure that they've got access to the technology, if I go through what my total cost is to have yep. that employee, uh, the the commitment from Focus Forward is that you will not pay more than if you were hiring that person for yourself to come into your firm. Uh, but you don't have to find them. You don't have to train them. You don't have to manage them. Uh, and by the way, you can hire the specific service that you need uh, with a product and a expert, a subject matter expert, in that uh, field rather than, like we said, you know, hiring somebody that's a mile wide and an inch deep. I guess un- unlike at least some firms that I see that work in this space that are, you know, such like TAMP, turnkey asset management structures that wrap this kind of operational support around it, it sounds like like they don't necessarily have to outsource investments to you and be part of your overall portfolio management and then also get staffing services, they can literally just hire you for whatever staffing services they need and pay a flat fee for staff members, for staff support. Yeah, that, that's 100% correct. And, and I'm glad you made that distinction because in the investment management piece of this, uh, each firm continues their own investment style. We are not a TAMP. We are not saying that we will pick investments for you. Um, so for example, Prairie View happens to outsource some of our investment research and stuff to a firm called Helios. Uh, and Helios provides us with a lot of, uh, a lot of the research that we, that we use in designing our portfolios. 
Uh, we also then will will do some of the due diligence in, into which specific investments are we picking. Uh, so what Focus Forward is doing for us is they're taking the Helios uh, research. They're also combining that with other outside firms so that they're doing some due diligence and saying, hey, here's what Helios is saying. Here's what these other firms, whether it be BlackRock or you know somebody else is saying from either a macro level or uh, even very specific into a sector level. Uh, they'll organize our monthly uh, investment committee meetings. They'll make sure that we're going through that due diligence. Uh, they'll also share with us the research on mm-hmm. you know, making sure that our due diligence file is complete with what specific right. funds we're using. But Prairie View is responsible for, here's what our portfolios look like. Uh, here's the trades we want to place. And then and then Focus Forward goes about, we, we happen to use uh, uh, Black Diamond. And so... Uh, Focus Ford will go into Black Diamond and they will help to then create that portfolio for us. We're giving them the instruction. They're just doing it on our behalf. Uh, and then uh, make sure that things like, you know, cash is raised when it's appropriate, that uh, the, right. the maintenance stuff inside of, an, inside of an account, making sure that clients never get shorted on a monthly distribution or RMDs come out or, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, but uh, Focus Forward is doing none of the investment management piece. Uh, it's the investment operation side of that that they're, that they're performing. And so how many advisors is Focus Forward supporting at this point? I don't know how many advisors but I know that we have four advisory firms that are being supported. Okay. Okay. And then what is like the internal team structure look like at Focus Forward? Yeah. So internally we have uh, six employees. Uh, the, the, there's one that is kind of a head of the customer service piece of our business who also happens to be a team lead. Uh, and then we have in new business support, there are two people that are working there and the investment management side. Uh, we have, one, two people. One, one is primarily responsible. The, the, we have somebody else that's just cross-trained in order to step in should something happen there. Uh, inside of financial planning, we have one dedicated person. Uh, and then we have somebody that helps with kind of the ongoing business management, uh, as well as kind of being that cross-trained individual should something come up and need to step in. Interesting. And and then obviously just the opportunity is as as growth comes, as more advisors come, you just get to hire more full-time people into specialized roles in service, in investment trading, in financial planning, and and just keep expanding that framework. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, I mean, really, like all firms, I mean, I'm sure every advisor that's listening to the podcast is going through the same thing we are, where it's like, you better be looking for people to hire all the time because when you need them, they're not going to be there. And it's, it's such a tight labor market. Uh, you know, and so, yeah, we've, I mean, that is an active full-time job of trying to find the right people. So, so what can you help us understand more? Like what are the typical advisory firms that, that you're working with at, at focus for like just who, who's engaging this in practice? Yeah. So uh, my perspective is that there's this whole middle I call it middle is probably most, a lot of people might think of it as the small end of the spectrum. Uh, but I consider it the middle part of the, uh, the advisory firm firms where you have advisors that have built their business that again, they're, they're too large to be a solo, too small to be big. So usually somewhere in that 75 million up to maybe 250 million in AUM. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a, a part of the business that where it gets really tough and frustrating. And, and I'm not saying that it's not tough and frustrating for people outside of that. Cause I know that they have challenges in their businesses as well, mm-hmm. but, but in this middle, uh, it gets really tough and frustrating because I have a lot of things that need to get done. A lot of 
uh, I don't know, a lot of question marks that maybe I don't have in a bigger firm that all of a sudden I'm like, how do I do this? And there's not a lot of focus there. Uh, There's a lot of focus on the bigger firms. Um, A lot of people want to aggregate them. A lot of people want to, you know, offer a lot of really good services, but it only makes sense if you're a billion dollar firm or so. And so really we're focused on that 75 million to, to 250 million AUM practice. Interesting. And and just where do they come from? Like how how do they how do they find you? How do they find Focus Forward? So most of it is through our network. Um, you know, people that we have known. You've personally have been in the business twenty six years this year, and so you just get to know people. And so yep. it's through that network. Um, and really, it's through the Prairie View website. You know, I we've done a lot of work with. Uh, within Prairie View to help our clients to understand as well that this is a team. And so as people hear about how the Prairie View team, which is a small little firm, uh, is able to do some of these things, then they start nosing around and say, well, you know, what's going on? And so uh, we just created a page on the website that said, click here if you want to learn about it. And uh, and it's kind of word of mouth is at this point in time. So help us understand like how you're thinking about the growth process overall and that you kind of have these two two things running in parallel like there's prairie view growing and doing the end financial planning work with clients and then focus forward is growing uh in this outsourced offering for other advisory firms so like where's your growth focus from here how do you think about balancing managing the growth between them yeah um, but that's an evolving conversation in my own head. So <laughs> we'll see if I can separate some of the, uh, some of the voices. Um, you know, for me, th- this has been a really good business. I love meeting with my clients. Uh, but I'm questioning, you know, is, is my time best spent sitting down in front of a client? Or is my time best spent looking at helping other firms that have gone through all the, they're in the middle of going through the stuff that we go through. Um, you know, I, when we sit down, when I sit down on that beach in Mexico and think through that stuff and then start writing, there are a couple of things that always come to my mind. Uh, one is how do I grow? How do I get people? How do I, and so the focus forward piece hopefully is going to support the Prairie View growth. You know, that's, it's meant to be a model that as Prairie View scales, we should, they should be able to scale right along with us and help to alleviate that pinch point of how do, when do I hire? How do I hire? Uh, type of thing. But then the other one that has always been on my mind is this continuity of ownership or, you know, what happens if I don't show up at the firm tomorrow? And, you know, I've done a pretty good job with our team and it's all our team. They, they do a great, great work where they make me look like a star uh, or the star of the show, but I've not done a really good job of bringing co-stars along with us all the time. And so I start thinking about if something happens to me, you know, my wife isn't involved in the business. She knows all of her employees. She has a key to the office, but she really wouldn't know what to do. Uh, there's nobody in the practice that my clients would say, hey, I, I would love for that person to become my advisor today and they could grow into that. Uh, and so it's really what happens to my business if something happens to me. Um, and I find that I think that there are a lot of advisors that are in our spot. They're in that same position. And so part of that growth really looks at what does that continuity look like? And that's where kind of this this idea around if I've got a firm that's already kind of running my middle and back office, then that continuity can look really similar. Uh, right. And now I can have I can have a, a relationship with another advisor that I trust that I can say, hey, will you take over the practice and help my clients uh, if something happens to me? And, and by the way, everything else can kind of flow pretty smoothly. Um, 
So, and I think so meaning like if something if something happens to you, uh, another firm that's on the focus forward platform can potentially buy out or step in and take over clients. And because the back office is already shared and like the systems and structures there, uh, it should be relatively straightforward for them to step in and and support those clients. They literally just have to show up and start talking to clients and having meetings because all the all the rest of the back office stuff is already done and set. Absolutely. And and even a step beyond that, um, you know, we're, we've created a process by which, you know, let's say uh, that me and, you know, John up the street, he's another financial advisor using Focus Forward. Uh, and he and I are talking, we get along fairly well. Uh, why don't we just put that in writing now? Why am I going to wait until I don't show up tomorrow for my wife to figure out, wait, how do, who's going to write paychecks? Who's going to pay the bill? You know, who's, how's all this right. stuff going to work? And, and by the way, at that point in time, she's supposed to negotiate what my business should be worth or what we're going to do here and what the terms are. Like she's not, that's not her background. That's not the, the world that she lives in. And so, and so really what we've done is we've put together a way for us to say, okay, let's just put this down on paper. Uh, think about it as a beneficiary almost for your practice that says, you know, here's what the terms will look like. Now, in order to do that, you've got to be tr- pretty transparent and open and say, hey, by the way, here's what my business looks like today uh, so that you can come up with some of those terms. But I see no reason why we can't we can't do that. Uh, and then if you have a place like a Focus Forward that's, that's doing the middle and back office, then it really does become a very seamless transition. As I looked at it in all transparency, you know, the part where I feel really vulnerable is not even, it's not even the value of my company. Uh, yeah, that's important to me. Uh, but I think my family with my life insurance, my family will be okay. So it's not like I'm worried about my family getting this huge check necessarily, but, but it's even more, who are my clients going to see? How's the, how's this not going to be chaos for them? And then take that one step further. This isn't the world that my family lives in. So who are they going to have as an advisor right now? I handle all that stuff, but you know, if something happens to me, who are they going to go to 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 have an advisor? And so, this ownership continuity concept really was born out of me feeling really vulnerable for my own stuff and saying, "There's got to be a better way for us to do this. Um, let's let's start seeing how we can come together and and make that a little easier for everybody." So, so how are you actually structuring these continuity agreements? Like, just how how would this actually work? Yes. So the the concept is that. Uh, that we can come to an agreement of some sort, uh, but and and we will. Uh, but the way that we do it is we say, okay, here's what we're going to use as a multiplier on the business, uh, so that for you the, know, for the valuation for the valuation, uh, so that you know anything that's recurring asset uh, is going to be valued at X. And so you don't have to worry about negotiating at the time after you've passed away. You don't have to worry about a fire sale. We're going to put that into the into the agreement right away. The payment obviously isn't going to be a lump sum. Uh, it'll be based on typically we look at 50% the first year, 25% in year two, 25% in year three. Uh, and, and in years two and three, there's a revaluation that takes place uh, just to make sure that the assets actually stick and we don't, you know, we don't know what attrition is going to look like right. and, and those types of things. Um, and it's really kind of as straightforward as that. You know, we don't have to get really particular with a bunch of stuff. We don't have to, you know, it really is, listen, you're, you're in a spot where you're going to need to transition your business. I'm in a spot where I'm looking to grow my business. Um, and so how do we just put this agreement together between the two of us? And, and as we do that, there's an annual kind of re-up where we sit down and we'll actually kind of talk about the business 
and and say, okay, well, about how big is your business now? How many clients do you have? How many? How much in assets? How are you running your financial planning practice? Because we have to make sure that there's consistency there as well. Otherwise, it's not. And it's almost like if uh, if we go out and buy a firm, um, you've got to have a lot of alignment if that's going to work. And so so annually, we get together, we relook at it, and just say, does this still make sense? And um, and make any adjustments we need to to the agreement. And how do you think about what like reasonable valuation multiples are with a with a deal like this? I mean, it's it's one thing when you know I'm I'm going to buy your practice, but or you're going to buy my practice. Like I'm here, I'm involved, I'm going to help support the transition because I want to you know maximize the value for uh, for all involved. It's another if like you know you just got a call from my now widow spouse who's like. Michael's gone. Apparently, I'm supposed to call you and you're supposed to come in and get all these clients. And I'm not necessarily here to facilitate this transition, which, you know, just means it's going to be at least a little bit bumpier for clients who are going to say, like, who's Tim and why are you calling me? Well, Michael died. Let me explain what's going on. Uh, so I guess I'm just wondering, like, how, how do you think about valuation and, and setting a multiple in that kind of environment? Yeah. So the way that we approach it is uh, the we start with what we think fair market value is today, and it's pretty straightforward. You know, the firms that we're dealing with, again, we're looking at that seventy-five to two hundred fifty million dollar firm. So we're looking at some multiple of gross revenue. We're not looking at uh, multiple on EBITDA or, or those types of things. And so, uh, so we just look and say, what do we think fair market value is today? Uh, and we're just looking ballpark. You know, it's it's different. It's different in this arrangement than when you're actually buying the firm because this is something that nobody thinks is ever going to happen. And so right. we can come to a fairly good agreement on here's what we think the market value is of the firm, and then we take a risk premium. Uh, and depending on what factors are going on in, inside of the business, will increase or decrease that risk premium. So, for example, if we're both utilizing Focus Forward and uh, it really will be the, the middle and back office is kind of handled, that's going to reduce the, the amount that we're going to add to that risk premium, if you will, or, or the risk reduction, uh, because that's one piece that's less risky. Uh, if you have a really good uh, advisor in your practice who is a farmer, not a hunter, and, and that farmer wants to stay in the practice, that again reduces that risk reduction uh, because there's some some additional continuity there. If we're going to have, and uh, we haven't done this yet, we're, we're in the process kind of kicking it around, you know, uh, if if you've had the conversation with all of your clients around, I, this is my continuity plan, uh, and here's what's going to happen. That's another risk reduction. And for from a client's perspective, I mean, all of our clients, you know, we don't maybe don't want to admit it, but all of our clients are thinking the same thing. What happens when Tim is hit by the beer truck? Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, it's it's out there on 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 their minds. Absolutely. At least many of them. You know, if we're a little bit less, if we're young, got long time horizons. But, you know, when any client can look across and say, you're going to retire before I die. Like you're working with me in retirement, but I can see you're going to retire before I die. I kind of want to know what's going to happen. What's the plan? Yeah. Yeah. And and so this – so what ultimately happens is what would be good for your business is to tell all of your clients, this is my ownership continuity plan. Uh, even, you know, we even talked about it with transition planning. We have advisors that we're talking to now that are maybe 55 to 58 years old. And they're saying, I'm not ready to retire yet, but I sure would love to start phasing out of the business. Maybe I'd love to only see clients uh, or maybe I'd only love to see my top 10% or, you know, and, 
And so it's all part of a, of a well-planned transition plan. And one of those eventualities is I might die or I might get hurt and can't show up to work. Uh, and so, so to, to broadcast that to your clients and say, Hey, I've got a plan that's put together here. Uh, in our opinion, it grows client loyalty, grows the likelihood that they're going to look to you for all of their assets instead of maybe holding some back because of that concern. Um, and, and then not only does it good for your business now, but also it reduces the risk should we have to step in and, and buy in that kind of emergency situation. Uh, so that lowers the risk, re- that risk reduction as well. And so in essence, you'll, you'll start with some going rate multiple. I guess I don't even know this. Is there a, is there a typical you know, benchmark multiple that you tend to look at for firms in this size in this market? I mean, is it two times revenue or a higher number or a lower number? Like, What's what's a typical starting point for you? Yeah, so it depends on uh, it depends on a number of factors, but for us, we're going to look somewhere between two point two five and three point two five in a recurring revenue multiple. Um, that just seems to make sense to us right now. Okay. The um, if we're and looking at non-recurring revenue, uh, then we're going to look somewhere between a 0.75 and a one point one five multiple uh, on the non-recurring revenue side. Okay. And so we'll start with some number there, right? We apply our, you know, take X multiple of recurring revenue column one, take Y multiple of non-recurring revenue column two, right? I can pull that off my P&L. And so then I guess risk premium for you essentially essentially equates to a discount off of this multiple or off of whatever valuation you get at the end of these multiples that says, you know, your your practice might be worth whatever it is, $700,000 based on these multiples of revenue, but we're, we're only paying 560, 20% less because you've got a fairly high risk premium because you're using your own services and you never explain this to your clients and you have no other team members who are going to hang around. Yep. That's the concept. So how... How large do do risk premiums get for you in in practice? I mean, how how much of a risk premium do you typically apply? Are these you know maybe it's ten or twenty percent lower, or are these like it could be thirty to fifty percent lower? Yeah, so it could. I mean, if it's fifty percent lower, we probably don't want to do that deal. Right? <laughs> there's, there's too much. There's some point where the risk is that high, then maybe that's just not a good one at all. That's right. Just doesn't make sense. Uh, and so ideally what we would look at is somewhere in that 20 to 35% of a risk premium. Uh, because the other thing, the other factor that comes in here is the that all of the transition cost is borne by the continuity partner. And so, you know, if you're still here and you're here and you're transitioning your business, to your point earlier, you're meeting with clients, you're helping with the repapering if there's any repapering that needs to be done. Uh, you're helping if there's a custodial change, you're helping with any custodial okay. change. You know, so all of those things are are part of that. So this isn't solely a, you know, sort of pure continuity, like, you know, hit by a bus, had a heart attack, whatever it is, like just not go, not there tomorrow. Okay, someone's got to step in and, and trigger this. This could also simply be, hey, Tim, I've decided that I really want to dial back. Like I'm, I'm ready to pull the trigger and have you buy me out. Yep, absolutely. And, and it could be uh, phased in, in that regard, you know, and that's what, that's where I think these, if I've, you know, kind of put my 15 year hat on. I think that over the course of the next 15 years, we're going to have a lot of firms that are the size that we're talking about that start out with this ownership continuity, kind of emergency planning, what happens if I get hit by the bus. But then as they get closer to retirement, there it's not going to be something, if I think about even my own retirement, I don't want to just flip the switch and today I'm full, full bore and tomorrow I'm out of right. the business. 
I'm going to want to kind of phase out. And so the, the picture here is that it starts out with an ownership continuity conversation and will be your emergency backup. But ultimately, in the next 10 or 15 years, as you want to phase out, it's really a transition plan and transition plan not being, here's a big check, don't ever show up here again. It, it really is, what does that legacy that you want to have look like? Um, and so uh, kind of under all of this, that's kind of our, what our mantra is, how can people control their legacy? What does the, what does controlling your legacy look like and how can we help you to do it? And I guess from the, from the flip side, so you sign an agreement, which says, here's the terms, like we are committing to this, this valuation, these terms, uh, and you, you know, you reevaluate it every year, but functionally, I guess I'm just sort of processing that out. So if, if something happens, just there it is, that's the deal. I know I've got terms. I know what they're set at. If retention is really bad, then they're, then the revaluation in subsequent years may haircut this, but otherwise I kind of know where it's going to come out. Uh, if uh, you know, just I'm ready to. Re- you, we do this for a couple of years, and I'm ready to retire. Because like I can, I can always still just go back out to the open market. Then, if I really want to see, like, well, I want to be a more proactive sale. Like maybe I want to look at other partners. Like I'm, I'm not necessarily bound to the agreement if I voluntarily want to go look somewhere else. But I, I can bind. But you know, Prairie View gets bound to the agreement that says if something happens, like, or I want to pull the trigger, you, you will be. Committed committed to following through on it. Yeah, so, Am I thinking about that the right way? Yep. Uh, I think I just want to clarify because I think you're 100% there, but just to make sure what Purview is committing to is uh, that if something happens to you and an emergency happens, here's your continuity plan. If you decide to retire, all bets are off. You can go shop it if you want right. to, you can, you know, whatever you want to do, but also Prairie View, you, you can't, it's not like a put, right? You can't say, hey, now I want you to buy me and it's a put, I'm, I'm retiring, buy my business. Um, it, it, what it really is, is us saying this, this is the ownership continuity track that we're on, but because of, we've been in this conversation for the last eight years, what's the logical place that's going to make the most sense for, right. for everybody. And, and so that's how we view it. And so what comes, what comes next is just, you look forward for the firm from here. Like, where are you going next from with this? So the, the plan or the, the hope is that uh, as I try to transition more and more of my time away from that in-person client interaction, uh, we start to look and say, well, what does it look like if our clients are advisory firms that are in that 75 to $250 million range uh, that have these problems, right? They've got the same problems that we've had. Uh, yep. And so what does it look like then if we just start reaching out to them and saying, how do we partner and, and how do we help take some of the problems that you've got and, and solve them in the way that we think we can? So help us understand a little bit more just your journey through the industry to to come to this place in the in, in the business. So like how how did you get started with Prairie View in this journey? Yeah, so uh, for us, I started in the as a captive agent for a company, Thrivent Financial. Um, back when I started, it was called Aid Association for Lutherans and had a merger and became Thrivent. And so for 20 plus years, I was a captive agent with them. And then back two years ago uh, is when it officially happened. It probably started the conversation about three or four years ago. Uh, Thrivent created what's called a, the Thrivent Advisor Network. Uh, which allowed advisors to kind of separate from that captive place and become really independent advisors under this platform. 
uh, and that's when Prairie View was created. So if somebody went out and said, hey, where's Prairie View? Their Prairie View is not going to show up except for the last couple of years, but it's because of the, the previous years that, uh, that we were thriving that we got to the place we are now. And really where we get to this conversation is really all around being the person that, that is in that spot, you know, being recognizing that I'm not solo anymore. Uh, I'm too big for that, but I'm also not big enough to really be big. And, and I think, you know, even as I think about myself, so I'm in my mid forties. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that I'm 44. So I don't know if I'm going to say middle yet. 45 is middle. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm in early forties. And as I think about my own business and think about when I retire, what do I want to have happen? Uh, there's not a lot of work being done with firms my size. There's a lot of resources being dumped into the billion dollar guys and above, uh, and guys being generic, you know, the, but the billion, billion dollar firms and above, not a lot in the people that are sub 250. And I think that there's a lot of work that needs to happen there. And, and there's a lot of advisors that are going to want to retire and there should be a good solution for them. Let's say that I had somebody that was a, a really large firm that wanted to acquire us and let's say, or, or private equity or, you know, something along those lines. Uh, if they came in today and they could offer me a huge multiple, it doesn't make sense. That's not my clients. That's not the practice that we've run. You know, we've run a family oriented kind of a firm. Uh, and so I don't feel great about that. And so what it seems to me is that there's this niche of firms that are in that range of people that are going to say, I just want to keep my firm like I had it. I want it to be my legacy. I want to control my legacy. And so it's that evolution that took place. It's me recognizing that, hey, if I'm in this spot, there are a lot of other firms that are in this spot. I think we could put something together that's pretty cool. Um, and that's that's how the, the thinking has kind of transformed from being that captive agent with Thrivent into, into today. So help me understand more though, just like why the why the change to go independent and and move under Thriving Advisor Network. I mean, like you you, you know, what was to prevent you from doing this kind of journey just at Thriving where you've where you've been for twenty plus years? Yes. Um, the, the best way that I like to explain it is I like to compare it. My wife and I had some landscaping work that was done in our yard a couple of years ago, uh, probably five years ago now. And in, in the backyard, I had a spot and I knew I wanted to put a bald cypress. I uh, don't know why, but I thought a bald cypress would look good there. And my landscaper told me I couldn't do it. And so I asked myself, is it because the, the soil's not right? You know, too sunny, too too wet? You know, why can't I put it there? And he said, well, to be honest with you, it's because I don't have it in stock. And I looked and I'm like, well, I don't care if you have it in stock or not. Go to the guy up the street, get it from him and put it in my backyard. And in essence, that's how I felt under the, with the thriving uh, captive part to my business. I felt like if Thrivent does great work, they have phenomenal products. I, I love the company. However, if they didn't manufacture a product or if they didn't have a product that was quite right for my client, I'm stuck selling my client oak trees instead of bald cypress that they want. And so that, that shift into that independent space really allowed me to say, I can be focused purely on my client and say, if, if Thrivent has a great program, whatever that program is, phenomenal. But if not, we get to say what's right for you and how do we go about uh, solving your needs, which, which is really why we've chosen to be this hybrid rather than fee only. Uh, because the a lot of our work is done helping clients from A to Z. Too many times we see 
uh, fee-only advisors who don't see the whole plan to the finish. They just kind of write the plan. I think a lot of it is very similar to estate planning attorneys who draft the trust and then don't make sure that all the assets get into the trust. Um, And so for us, in that hybrid model, it kind of holds us accountable to say, you know, not only are we going to make sure that the plan is right, make sure that the advice is right, uh, but then we're also going to make sure that the execution happens and, and provide some service there too, because it's a really confusing place out there. Um, and so hopefully help with, with giving some good advice around execution as well. And do you, do you have any concerns or ever get any pushback from clients asking about uh, you know, fee-only fiduciary in those conversations? We don't uh, very much. And, and part of it might be just in how our conversation is that you know, I, I tell them, even though if we're talking about, say, an insurance product uh, or an annuity product, I'm not necessarily in this fiduciary, legally bound world in, in that instance. However, the way that I approach our relationship is that I am. You know, I am I am never going to act outside of my fiduciary responsibilities, regardless of the uh service that we're providing or the task that we're performing. And so, so really that's not ever been an issue for the clients that we serve. And, and so why, I mean, obviously you had some direct connection already being at Thriven, but like why Thriven Advisor Network? I mean, there are a lot of independent advisor platforms out there. If you were going to go shop for, for being, for being independent uh, uh, and no longer being Thriven Captive, like why, why Thriven Advisor Network? So I think it, it really goes into a couple of different categories or a couple of different reasons. Uh, one, obviously, as you mentioned, the affinity, familiar with them, know them. Uh, they're in alignment with my faith-based background, those types of things uh, is one piece. Another piece is that uh, because of that, they, they tend to be a large enough firm that I wasn't worried about them going out of business. Uh, you know, one of the things, and this is completely conjecture on my part, based on no facts or any of that kind of stuff other than just things that I'm saying. You know, but as I look across the landscape, I see a lot of these firms that are trying to be aggregators uh, that are going out and offering you know, really lean payouts for advisors. They're uh, offering multiples to buy businesses. They're doing those things. And uh, a lot of that was done is being done during times when we have really low interest rates and markets for the most part that have, that have just gone up. And so part of my concern is, as I look out at the landscape is, will those models continue for the next 15, 20 years? Uh, mm. or, or will there be some some issues where if we have markets that are correcting and you have fee revenue going down, uh, combined with interest rates going up, that all of a sudden we're going to be in a much different landscape and some of those support that you thought that you were subscribing to, uh, some of those places might go out of business. I don't know that they will. I'm not but just in my mind, that was another concern that was going through my mind where the financial background of, of a Thrivent type um, just wasn't that that wasn't as much of a concern for me. Uh, but probably the biggest piece for us was the transition for our clients. Uh, because I was in that Thrivent world uh, and being part of the Thrivent Advisor Network, it allows me to continue to be the person of record for all of those client accounts. Um, and that that's a much harder thing to do to say, okay, Mr. and Mrs client, uh, you've got these right. things that I can no longer help you with, uh, but I still want to be your financial advisor. Um, you know, that's just, that's, there's not a congruency there. And so it was, it was really kind of those three things that drove me to that decision. 
and then how do how does the structure how does the structure work for you? Uh, so I guess I'm presuming then that means that uh, like prayer review is is an IAR like a DBA structure under Thrive Advisor Network. Are you are you actually technically an IAR of their RIA? So right now that is that's the structure. Um, okay. the, there's conversation and, and things to maybe make that look a little bit different. Uh, but for right now, that's our structure. Okay. And, um, and, and I guess just how do you think about the services that a platform like Thrive and Advisor Network provides versus the services that you're building and scaling up through Focus Forward? So completely different. So TAN, Thrive Advisor Network, TAN for short, uh, what they do is really, uh, really co-op is the best word for it. Uh, kind of bringing together advisors and saying, I'll use Preview as the example. If I go to Charles Schwab, for example, and say, hey, Schwab, do you guys want our business? Uh, they'll say, yeah, we want your business, but at your size, uh, here's an 800 number or here's this service level that you'll that you'll get. Uh when a when a tan goes to them and says we have fifteen prairie views, uh, can we do business with you? That you get a much different response. Uh, similarly, I would think with like uh, negotiating our pricing on a Salesforce, for example, uh, or our they also help with all of our cybersecurity, our compliance stuff, those types of things. And th- that's not a world that Focus Forward ever wants to necessarily get into. Um, and so the the tan model helps us to to combine some resources and get a better result. Uh, than a firm my size could do if I was just doing it on my own. And so it sounds like that's particularly in the context of, you know, platform and service providers like RA custodians, technology deals like Salesforce, where you're looking for those those platforms like TAN to give you the bulk bulk negotiating discount capabilities that just give you a better deal through them than what you were going to get on your own. Absolutely. Combined with, you know, when I think about my uh, compliance issues, you know, a, a RIA that's much bigger that I can plug into probably has better compliance opportunities than I can on a firm my size, mm-hmm. uh, as well as the technology side. You know, the, that's that's probably if I look at the entire offering, it's the technology piece that uh, that I think is probably the one of the biggest things for me in particular, uh, not from a technology, we're fairly technologically savvy in the firm. But when I think about from the cyber perspective and, you know, how, do, how are we protecting client data? Um, there's some comfort there for me. I think that smaller firms can do it. There are tools out there. Uh, every time I talk to the people I know that are in that world, they say, hey, you don't have to do it. We can do it for you. And, and it's really easy. Um, and, and I get that, but my, my fear is that I think that that's one part of our business where the risk, the risk perspective is just going to continue to balloon. Um, and, and I would rather have some support there than do it on my own. And how does it work financially if you're like under TAN or operating as an IAR under their, under their RIA? Like, is it sort of like a broker dealer environment? You get a, you get a percentage of revenue payout that comes back to you and, and they get a portion of it for the services that they provide? Yeah, pretty much. They take a, I take a haircut um, for them providing those services. And the haircut is only on the uh, RIA related business. Uh, so there's no haircut uh, since we are a hybrid. You know, if there's any right. sort of a commissionable type of a product that uh, that we're offering, there's no haircut there. But there is a haircut for any of the uh, advisable type of business. And what kind of haircut do they do they charge? 
Yeah, that ranges based on size. Uh, you know, I think that the the bigger you are, obviously, the lower that haircut gets, uh, but it can range anywhere from probably 5% as high as maybe 15% of advisory revenue. And, you know, I ideally, at least from your end, that's absorbing the 5 to 15% you may have otherwise spent on technology, uh, compliance, and, you know, the, the other centralized stuff that they're trying to bring back to you. That's right. Yeah. So when I when I go down that list and I'm like, okay, so for me to hire it done, whether I outsource it or insource it, uh, and I go down this list of things that are being provided, I'm like, okay, well, what are my costs to do that? But then also, what's my mind share? You know, because if I if that stuff's on my mind, I'm not thinking about how I'm going to service a client, or I'm not thinking about how we can put together this ownership continuity plan, or you know, whatever those things are, because mind share is occupied by some of those things. And so it's not just a pure dollar for dollar math problem in my mind. It, it's a that's a huge part of it, but there's also something that has to be added to that equation that just says that's one thing that I don't have to have on my mind anymore. In I guess I'm just wondering or trying to process like, you know, there, there's a percentage of revenue that flows to TAN. There's uh, a, a slice then that goes to, to focus forward. I know like there's a part of me that says it, it feels like that's a lot of different checks that like Prairie View has to write for all the different pieces. And then the other half of me says, well, you know, advisory firms are often at the end of the day, 30 or 40% of revenue goes to some combination of that overhead stuff anyways. That's just kind of how it breaks out at the end. So how, how do you think about these sort of la- layers of costs that you have to manage with the the providers and support structure that you have around you? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And it really goes back to the things that they're doing, I have to do anyway. It's I'm not choosing to have an additional service, right? Or I'm not choosing to have them do something that I wouldn't be doing already. I have to have the middle and back office in my practice. I have to have compliance. I have to have technology. So really, it's sitting down and saying, I'm going to write a check here to say focus forward. But if I wasn't writing that check, I'd be writing a different check inside of my practice. And what would that look like? What would that expense look like? But then also, what would all of the other things that go along with it? Um, the hiring, the training, the managing, the, you know, just go down that list. And right. uh, and like everything else, there's a value proposition there. For some, for some, it makes sense. And they're like, yeah, I see the value there. And that's how I would choose to do it. And others will say, no, I can do it better or cheaper or just more desirous inside of my own practice. Um, but for us, it makes sense. And for both from a financial as well as a, I don't know, from my perspective, the logical or value proposition phase uh, portion of that, it just makes sense for us to do it. So I so then I am curious, the, um, the one part that I had heard earlier, I think you said you do still keep in, in-house as part of that Prairie View team structure is that marketing is still in-house for you. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm I'm curious to hear more about uh, about that, right? Of all the different things that can get outsourced versus insourced. Frankly, I, I don't see a lot of firms that have full time marketing staff internal. If 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 there's any dollars set there at all, often that's a you know we hire a marketing consultant or a person that sells a, a service or an offering to support advisors on marketing. So tell us more about like why why marketing in house and what do they do. Yeah, so my picture is, and maybe we define marketing slightly different here than, than others might, but 
uh, the reason we keep marketing in-house is I don't think there's anybody that that can tell our story better than we can. Uh, you know, the when we talk about like a focus forward, we're taking all the things that's not our secret sauce and we're shifting it to that company. Uh, if I think about anything from a uh, secret sauce perspective, that's where I want to keep it in-house. And, and I think that uh, marketing is one of those things. The when I look at uh, the previous site, and, and consequently, you know, when we have people that say, "Hey, tell me more about that focus forward thing," we actually send them to the Prairie View website because the marketing team is inside mm-hmm. of Prairie View, and it's the Prairie View site is, will lead you to to those things. And so, my picture is that's the story, right? That's who tells the story. Yeah. That's who gets the story. Um, and so, marketing for us though might look slightly different because what we put into marketing are all of our customer experience types of things. Uh, So if when we talk about like our financial planning process, uh, our marketing department is laying out in between steps one and two, here's what the client's going to get. When the client comes into the office, here's how they're going to be greeted. Um, you know, those types of things, because we think that the best marketing we can do would be to have our clients give us more referrals. And so our marketing department is really all about that client experience and how do we, how do we make them so happy that they want to give us more referrals, um, which is probably different than what other firms would technically call marketing. But in our picture, that's part of the marketing department. So is there an external component to the marketing side of things as well, or is it entirely internal? No, there's external as well. Um, you know, so for example, uh, this is silly, but we've got, I, I shared with you, that we have a an apprentice that is kind of going through our uh, training program. Uh, we also had an intern this summer, uh, a high school senior. Had, I, he happens to be my son as well. Uh, but so the, the apprentice and the intern, one of the things the marketing department had him do was, uh, I call him the department, it's one person uh, in a and a contractor. Uh, but one thing that marketing had them do is they got uh, freeze pops and tied a, a card around it that just says, hey, we're your neighbor. Uh, if you need anything, give us a call type of a thing. And it was more to that, but, you know, just a card that just, and they walked around the neighborhood where our office is and just said, you know, we, I don't think we've met before. Uh, here's some push pops. It's a cold, it's a hot summer day. Uh, just want to give you this and say hi to our neighbors type of a thing. And so that's one example of some of the external stuff, uh, that the marketing department is doing as well. So I guess I'm, I'm wondering like how much of your time of the marketing department time is split between the, the external kind of kinds of things versus the internal client experience hopefully that ultimately drives growth with referrals like how how do you think about the allocation of time or effort between external marketing versus you know that that internal client experience as marketing structure 70 30 70, 70 in which direction yeah 70 percent internal and 30 percent external uh, and that's gone in different uh, degrees at different times throughout our history. You know, there was a time when we were doing lots and lots of workshops. Uh, and so when we were doing the workshop marketing, then the marketing department obviously was way more busy uh external than they were internal. But really for the last probably three years or so, uh, it's 70% internal, 30% external. So is, is that like pandemic related? You know, I couldn't do seminars because uh, uh, a lot of stuff was shutting down or just a, a shift in your marketing growth preferences. Yeah, ironically, it corresponded a little bit with pandemic timing, but it really was a decision. So we had made the decision uh, entering 
I don't know, my, I get my years confused now. Was it 2020 then when the pandemic hit? Um, yes. So, so it was entering that year in December that year, we made the decision that we were not going to do workshops like we did uh, previously uh, entering 2020. And then, you know, March, the pandemic hit and uh, it just was fortuitous that that was not part of our plan that year. Um, but it, but really what we saw is in, in throughout the course of our time, We've seen workshops go through a lot of different phases where they're really, really hot for a while and you get a bunch of people that come out and they listen and you can pick up a lot of new clients that way. And then, then they go through a time where people kind of went through that phase and they get cold for a period of time. And so it was our anticipation that they had just gone cold. And so we were going to shut them off for a while. Um, so like I said, it was just fortuitous for us or fortunate for us that it happened at the same time the pandemic hit. So then I guess I'm wondering just what, what else is marketing doing internally related? I mean, you'd said one piece is like they're, they're looking closely when clients are going through the financial planning process of like what's, how, what, what communication or experience are they getting between the meetings and the early planning process? So I, I get that as, as one element, like what else are they doing or where else are they focusing that you've got this internal marketing effort? Yeah, so a lot of different places. So uh, one of the things that they do will also be uh, the overall client experience. Uh, yes, through the financial planning process as an example, but also, you know, what are we going to do at Christmas time? Are we going to have like a Christmas party? Um, they'll look as well at, uh, we, we like to structure some give back days, you know, so partner with, we partner with a local farm for uh, kids that have some developmental, uh, I shouldn't say kids, for people that have developmental issues. Uh, and so we partner with them and we'll have clients come out and join us for one of those give back days um, as another example. The other thing that marketing, that we look at with marketing is also our internal marketing to our uh, employees. And so on our team, the it's important, like everybody knows, as we talked earlier, you know, finding talent and keeping talent is a really big deal. And so the marketing department, one of their key constituents is also uh, our internal employees and making sure that the, the employee experience is what we want it to be uh, so that they're happy sticking around for as long as as long as we can. So what does that mean in, in practice? It's like, what are they doing for yeah, so finding or keeping talent to support? So some of it is, uh, for example, somebody comes on board, uh, what are they going to get at their desk when they, when they, with their first day in the company, do they have anything that's sitting at their desk waiting for them? Who's greeting them? Who's walking around the office? You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, paying attention to give you an example, our, uh, front office, uh, person. So one of her big tasks, if you will, is to make sure that she's making phone calls out to all of our existing clients uh, on the schedule to make sure that we've got them coming in for their financial planning uh, meetings. And we have a target where we're looking for uh, 15 appointments scheduled every week. Well, the other week she got 19 appointments scheduled that week. And so uh, the marketing department got a cake and brought it in and surprised her and said, hey, you, you hit 19 instead of 15 and we're going to celebrate it type of thing. Um, so it's, it's culture. It is uh, those types of things. But it's also then making sure that the team gets together on a quarterly basis and talks about from a business perspective, what are the things that we're doing for our clients? What are the stories that so what are the stories we can share uh, so that then our employees can go back and say, hey, by the way, this place I'm working at does really good work. You should come talk to us. And so we get a, get referrals from employees as well. Um, if that gives a little more detail to it, Michael. Yeah. 
Very cool. Very cool. So, so I guess then just more broadly, I'm wondering like, how do you guys explain just value of financial planning and, and what you do to clients? Yeah. So uh, our picture is that, uh, and if we you look to kind of what are, what is our uh, objective as a company, uh, we stated is we, we like to help people live to their God-given potential. And so when we talk about financial planning, uh, the, the concept is that the next pick a number, five years of your life are going to go by whether we want them to or not. So what at the end of that five-year period do we want to have have happened? And if we're intentional with what we do and we're intentional with how we plan, we can end up in a much different place in five years than if we're not. And so when we talk about financial planning, it's not about that one great idea that you have, or it's not about this year, man, my investments did so much better because I had a financial planner. It's all about making the incremental decisions that add up. And over time, you end up where you want to end up and you end up there intentionally rather than just letting life kind of happen to you. Interesting. Uh I'm struck there, though, that I, know, I feel like a lot of us in the advisory world, we tend to talk about, you know, I'll call it like the super long-term goals, or, you know, uh, kids to school in 10 or 20 years, retirement in 20 or 30 years, 30 years in retirement. Uh, like, why five years? Just, I was struck like you, you framed this in terms of a five-year window that seems like a, a very specific and not multi-decade time period. Well, in my experience, you know, if, it depends on where somebody's at in their life, depends on that that time period. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, if I'm sitting down with somebody, it is really hard to picture 30 years from now. I don't know where I'm going to yeah. be in 30 years. But if I can sit down and I say in five years, you know, what do you, what would you think about if if the mortgage was paid off in five years, holy cow, I couldn't believe it. That would be yeah. amazing. You know, that kind of stuff. And so what, what many times will happen is as we have the conversation, they will naturally from five years start to expand out. And then, and once they say, oh, here's what I'd like in the next five, then you can go, oh, well, if that was true, what would it look like in 10? Oh, well, if that was true, what if you could retire at, you know, 62 instead of 67 when you thought you were going to? And, you know, now all of a sudden their mind can open up and have that conversation in a different way. Where if you sit down and just say, where do you want to be in 30 years? My, the clients that we work with, many times their minds don't work in 30 year chunks. They work in smaller chunks and they need to be coaxed or coached into thinking in 30 year chunks. Very cool. So what what surprised you the most about this journey of building your advisory firm? The the old adage of, uh, you know, it, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right, uh, uh-huh. is, is so true. And so many times, especially when I was early in the career, I would put these goals out there. I'm a, I'm a goal setter kind of guy. And I'd put these goals out there and they would seem like really big and scary goals at the time. And, and thinking about it now... Uh, they were limiting goals. They were things that that they limited my my growth. It was if I would have put a number out there like a gross revenue number or number of new clients out or whatever, uh, my brain, everybody's brain, works to solve the problem. And the it was what seemed like pie in the sky. Holy cow! If I could ever, really was my self limiting goals that I was doing. And uh, and so th- that's today. Uh, I've, there's a number of books that talk about it, but, uh, but I know Dan Sullivan from strategic mm-hmm. coach, uh, is one of them that talks about 10 X and, you know, the number of times the business has grown 10 X in that 26 years is a lot. You think you can, you think you can't, well, don't limit yourself with what you think you can. 
Interesting. Yeah, I'm just I'm struck by that framing. Like, you know, it's not the like, hey, it was great. I set goals and achieved them. It's it's like, yeah, I set goals and I achieved them. Yeah, yeah. It was a win at the time. It felt like a win, but you look back on it. Yeah, yeah. So, what was the low point for you on this journey? The I think the low point uh, really happened back in probably 2004 ish. Um, the, so when I talk about setting those goals, uh, I had set the goal. It was a goal that was like super aggressive in my mind. I hit the goal. Uh, and then after that, I really didn't have a whole lot to go off of, uh, because that was like everything I had put into it, uh, was this was the goal. And then kind of in that time period, uh, it was a business production goal. It was building the house that we wanted goal. It was all these lifestyle or, uh, non, I mean, those are significant things. Don't get me wrong, but but the non non things things of non significance that were were out there and were those goals, and I found myself for probably longer than I'd want to admit, uh, floating and maintaining and not really building the business, not really growing the business, kind of not wondering kind of what the next step was. Uh, and that time period was probably one of those uh, was probably the low point. Uh, and then as you, as I came out of that and started realizing, you know, Hey, here are some other things, more significance types of things. Uh, it changed the, changed the landscape pretty dramatically for me. So what, so what put you into the funk? It was, it was achieving the goal, right? It was so, so sitting, when I was sitting in 2004, the, the goal was I had a business gross revenue number. Uh, at that time, Thrivent had a, uh, they had like a reward system where you got to qualify for trips. Uh, I always called it chicken dinners. Uh, they give you a lot of chicken dinners to win. And, uh, and so I had a certain chicken dinner I wanted to win from Thrivent. I had certain business uh, revenue goals that I wanted to hit. And I had a house that I wanted to build. And all three of those things happened by the by the beginning of 2006. And so then I found myself at the end of 2006 looking around and saying, so now uh, what's uh-huh. next, right? And, uh, and, and they were very superficial things. They were very, they weren't, they weren't big world changing things. Uh, they're important to me at the time, uh, but they weren't things that I would say of significance. And so then I spent probably another five years maintaining that, but it wasn't a growth period. It wasn't an exciting period. It was middling at best. Um, and it was all because it's like, okay, so where do I go next? And um, and that's where this whole concept of, you know, we're here to help people to achieve the fullest potential that God has made them to achieve. And if I look at that every day, there is a lot that, that we can continue to work on and, and that's empowering to me. And so it was making that shift to more significance than just, hey, these are my three uh, goals that were significant to me at the time, but they're not goals of significance. And that's the difference. And so like what turned this around for you? I mean, like how did you find the the new framework? I was fortunate. So uh, if I go back to my dad, who was in the business through Thrivent, uh, and he and I were business partners uh, for 18 years. He, he passed away a number of years ago, uh, eight years ago now. But uh, but during that time, he was always one of the people that helped me to, to work through that. Uh, great sounding board. And so that was part of it. But really, I think it was a maturity thing. Uh, it was a recognition of when you're when you're young in the career, young in life, young family, uh, those things, you have certain things that you think are important and significant. And then as you transition a little bit, you realize that, you know, there are other things here that are even more important um, that have even more significance. So it was a combination of those two things, I think, Michael. So what else do you know now about building the firm that you wish you could go back and tell you like 10, 20 years ago? Uh, 
it all has to do around staffing. Uh, the minute you think that you need to hire somebody, you're too late, you're behind the ball. Uh, and the minute you think you should get rid of somebody, you're too late, you're behind the ball. Um, you know, the, on both sides of it, the far too often is for me personally, um, I would be in a growth mode, feel, have a sense that we should hire somebody and be nervous about it. Uh, be nervous around, do I have the money to invest? Uh, what's that going to mean to our bottom line? You know, those types of things. And, uh, and so then I would hold off and hold off and hold off and my conservative nature would not take the leap that we needed to to take. Uh, and then on the flip side, you have somebody that you just know in your heart isn't the right fit. They're not the right person in the right seat on the bus uh, in the company. And for a number of factors, whether it is personal concern for the employee's well-being, it is concern around who's going to fill their seat, you know, for whatever reason, you choose to stay in that relationship in the company longer than you should. Um, and it's bad for you and it's bad for the employee. And so those those are the things if and I still struggle with them. So it's not like I'm checking yeah. the box. Hey, I got it learned. But but if those are the two things that if there's anything that has kept us from growing the way that we could have, it is it is all around not hiring fast enough and not uh, separating fast enough either. So any other advice you would give younger, newer advisors looking to become an advisor today? Yeah, uh, it is a wonderful journey. Um, the, it is outstanding and what happens, especially depending on how young or new in the career somebody is, if they're like me, uh, you start out in the career and you have these moments where you feel like, man, I'm doing the exact thing that I should be doing. And then you have moments where you feel like, what in the world am I doing? I don't know anything. I'm not the right person <laughs> for this. I, nobody wants to call me back. Nobody wants to, you have all these self doubts, um, when it's when you start out, those self doubts happen like minute to minute. You know, it's like the really really high and then the really low. Yeah. Uh, and what happens is over time, all of a sudden they start to become like weekly roller coasters instead of minute by minute or daily. And then you know it's every couple of months, and you still have them. You know, twenty six years in the business, you still have those times when you're down in the in the valley part of the business. Uh, but just stick through those. I mean, the you will get through it. And if you just continue to push, continue to work, uh, you can make this business an outstanding business. You can really make it whatever business you want it to be, uh, solo practice or multi-advisor firm. You can make it whatever you want it to be. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And, and just one of the themes that comes up is the, the word success just means different things to different people. And so you've had this wonderful path of success in growing the business, not kind of to, to in parallel with, with Prairie View and Focus Forward. So the, the businesses are going well, but how do you define success for yourself at this point? Uh, yeah, so uh, I have affirmations that I kind of hold myself to on a daily basis. Uh, the first one is I want to be a great dad. Uh, second one is I want to be a devout Christian. The third one is that I want to take care of myself physically. Uh, fourth one is I want to be the best husband that I can be. Uh, and then the, the last one is that I've got some financial objectives as well. And if I can fire on all five of those, then that's success. Uh, those aren't necessarily in order. I probably put, uh, you know, if I'm being transparent, I probably put my family, wife, and, and kids. So, so dad and husband uh, is pretty close to the top. Uh, Christian probably should be number one at the top. But, but if I look at it, I'm being honest with how I do it, that's probably right after them. Uh, and financial is probably number three. And then the last one would be uh, my health. And so, you know, that's kind of how I rank them. And if I, if I will, but if I could fire on all five of those, that's a successful life. And 
where did that come from? I mean, just that that list and having those affirmations, like you you listed those very quickly. Those are cl- clearly things you really are affirming on a daily basis. So, where where did that come from? Uh, through several uh, iterations, several iterations. So, you know, there's uh, I I love I love to read. I'll probably read a book or two a, a week. And, you know, there's a number of people that talk about the morning ritual or the ideal morning. If you, even if you read, uh, you know, Think and Grow Rich, uh, there's a lot of talk about what are the things that you should be doing kind of on a regular basis. Uh, we, we subscribe to EOS and, uh, and that model. And so there are things that just as you look at this, regardless of the iteration that you have, they talk about what are your things and what are the things you're going to set goals around and uh, how do you do that? And so for me, just over time, I've realized that those are my five. Um, and if I can if I can do all five of those, that whether it's today or it is 50 years from now, I am going to be a very happy person. And so do you actually have like a morning routine of how these come into your life as affirmations every day? I have a morning target. I have a routine <laughs> would, would say that I do it every single day, uh, but I have a morning target for sure. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. There's, uh, there's about, I don't know, eight different things that I try to do every morning. Um, and if I, if I do four of them, then I consider it a win. Uh, so yeah, that's my routine. And I, I don't mind sharing it. I mean, I, I don't know if anybody cares yeah. what but it is. Yeah. But. Like just what, it, what does it look like? Or at least what, what's the target? I like, I like morning target a lot more than morning routine. <laughs> yeah, yes. Being a, not the morning person myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm not a super morning person. You know, I'm usually a 6 30 AM kind of guy. Uh, and if I can work out, if I can do a devotion, if I can take 10 minutes in quiet time or meditation, uh, followed by journaling, uh, then I try to read my goals that I've got for the year. I set goals in, in each of those categories. Um, and then if I look at what my plan is for the day, which I write the night before, uh, then I try to repeat what those goals are. I just read them to myself. So I, I review them and then I read them and I repeat them again. Uh, and I try to pray. And if I can do those things every day, um, or at least the majority of those things every day, then I have a very good day. So workout, devotion, quiet Medi- time, meditation, yep. journaling, read goals for the year, set plan or review plan for the day, repeat the goals, and then pray. Yep. It's a powerful morning routine or a Thank powerful you. morning target. Target. That's right. <laughs> Oh, very cool. Very cool. Thank you, Tim, for joining us and sharing that on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, thank you. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you, Tim. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.